0: Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at office Dave Sharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word of mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about Archipro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is Stuart Vokes and Aaron Peters from Vokes & Peters, a Brisbane-based practice founded in 2015 who have produced a significant body of award-winning projects across Australia. In this episode, Stuart, Aaron, and I discussed why the studio believes engaging with the profession and immersing themselves in their passion for architecture through books, travel, and teaching have contributed to a more sustainable and quality design practice. We spoke about how Aaron and Stuart value the role of a caring critic in their partnership and why they believe it's essential to have honest feedback to continue improving and growing as an architect. We looked at why the studio focuses on writing, essays and an upcoming book as a helpful process for clarifying their thinking, reflecting on their work and attracting like-minded clients. And finally, we discussed the reasons the practice has lost interest in Instagram over time as the platform has moved from being a place for socializing and sharing ideas to just another channel for promoting finished project images. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Stuart and Aaron from Vokes and Peters. Aaron and Stuart, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having us. So I think it would be great to start off with maybe a little bit of a background on the studio, just so that people who maybe haven't been familiar with you guys have a little bit more of an idea of kind of how long the studio has been going for, what kind of work you guys do and all of that good stuff. So
1: if one of you want to take it away. We formed the practice in 2015, uh, but Stuart and I have known each other for a lot longer than that. So when I was a year student at QUT um, back in the day, I think it was 2003, Stuart had just started his own practice with Paul Owen about three months before I met him, I think. And he happened to be my design tutor. So... He invited me to come in and do some work for him, and I said yes because I had nothing else to do. And basically, I refused to leave. So, um, what's this about twenty years later? Just about twenty yeah. years later, Stu, and um, I still a yeah, not left. Yeah, it's almost
2: twenty years. Yeah, that's right. It became quite apparent just a couple of months into the, you know, my first practice that um, I was really fond of working together with people. I don't think the word collaboration had been used at that point with um, to describe kind of what architects did together as a way of promoting, you know, their values. But it was certainly something that was instinctive for me that, you know, working together with people would be the way in which I would pursue making buildings. And, um, I, you know, I think what Aaron and I have kind of learned is that it's quite a rare commodity to find someone, to find a collaborator that you can kind of make buildings with Um and and continue to do that after nearly twenty years. It's it's quite it's quite precious, I think. So and quite rare.
0: Oh, that's so lovely. So maybe give us also just a bit of a sense of what the typical kind of mix of projects that you guys are working on these days. Um, has it has it mostly been the same since the since the early days, or have you? Yeah, what, what,
1: what are you guys kind of working on at the moment? Been a lot the same. Um, we've we we started out doing residential alterations and additions, and dreamed of getting some new houses. So we've, we've done a few new houses now, um, but the bulk of our work is is still based in resi, mostly alts and ads, and, and a couple of new houses. But one of the more exciting parts of, of the last few years has been starting to do a few buildings that aren't houses. So we've got a quite a number of vet practices and hospitals that we've done, which is really exciting. Uh, at the moment, we've got a, on, on site at the moment, so... Um, a library in Nambucca Heads, which is just about due for completion, uh, and Stu's work on social housing tower at the moment. Um, so the, so there are a number of buildings that, that we've done that that aren't houses, and I have to say that's pretty exciting, isn't it, Stu?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting how life works. I think I, I was, a, as I guess Aaron's, one of Aaron's mentors in the early days, I mean, it's different now. He sort of mentors me, which is great. Um, we take turns, but In the early days, um, I I often found myself suggesting to Aaron that maybe he just be more patient and stay calm. That I I felt like wherever it was that he needed to be or go, you know, whatever that direction was, that I I always said, "I think you're heading in that direction." You know, Mm. whatever that mysterious direction is, or or the places that you want to be. And so there's a sort of, um, you know, there's a there's a patience about practice that is necessary. But it it always seemed like things worked out for us if we decided that we would like to do more commercial work or be engaged in more public work somehow we behaved in a manner that and attracted those commissions and it wasn't wasn't the typical kind of um, uh, aggressive corporate move that one would make to attract that work i think you know and attract those commissions we weren't necessarily proactively out there in the market um, whining and dining people or attending functions or particularly targeting anyone or a- any organization i think there's something more esoteric that happens and i think the way in which you project yourself and the way in which you uh speak the way in which you express your you know your work and your values i think ultimately attracts the work that you want um Mm. there's something really powerful about just being being yourself and being as genuine as you can be in the way that you work and the way that you express your work um and, and explain your work i think so you know it sort of just always felt like okay if we were just patient and we sat back we didn't really ever need to kind of um yeah aggressively target something or chase something it came it it came to us if we were patient and in the early days so all the way through i guess people have always said oh um do you guys specialize in houses and i we'd always think reflect and think well actually we don't necessarily specialize in anything other than working for people that want our work you know that um we specialize in working for um, those that share values and sensibilities that, that we do in, in the practice. And that sounds kind of daft, I guess, as an expression, but um, in, in a lot of ways it's a really wonderful way to practice that both architect and, and clients find each other if things are working the way that um, they should be, you know. Um, we haven't found clients because we've been aggressive in the market and, and sought work or sought, yeah. sought commissions from um, from clients. It's um, a, And I don't think it's just a it's not a kind of arrogant position that simply someone has magically found us. I think it's, um, yeah, there's this thing about people finding each other in the same way that you find that you make friends, I think socially.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I usually kind of hold off uh, on the on the marketing chat till halfway through but you're just going straight into it I appreciate it so i'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take the bait and ask my marketing kind of questions up front um so yeah this I lo- I think it's a big um, part of the reason I was keen to have you guys on because there is this sort of sense of putting yourself out there and articulating your kind of point of view and then that just very organically attracting the right sorts of people or at least that's the impression that I sort of get from the outside but I'm interested to understand that a bit more. So uh, when you say sort of being ourself and kind of talking about you know uh, what we do and what we're about, I'm just interested maybe in what medium that has taken that's been effective for you because you do lots of public speaking, lots of essays, you're very involved, uh, lots of writing I should say, you're very involved and engaged with the industry travel around the place like you're not just focused on your local area like so many Mm. studios would be you're kind of traveling to Melbourne I saw you guys speaking I think I saw you speak in Perth at one point Stuart so you're kind of you're out there sort of spreading the word about your work it's not like intentionally kind of marketing I suppose but it's just you're engaging and doing things so is that the sort of stuff that you feel has gotten you to build those relationships with those clients kind of nice and passively or do you think it's maybe more of the traditional stuff like being kind of you know in houses magazine or or whatever more of that sort of bread and butter architecture stuff
2: I think it's all of those things Dave which um, is a sort of cop-out answer but I think it starts with us being uh, like at the beginning of working together we you know nearly 20 years ago we we talked about uh, certain tenants that we would practice by uh, and you know i think number one on the list was simply that we would focus on making architecture in the first five you know seven years of business whatever whatever the that first sort of um period of business is considered to be whatever that duration is but um you know we would focus on arch- making architecture not making money which is a an, an absurd way to start a commercial venture really to, to not have a kind of really strong plan about making money but it seemed pretty obvious that if you focused on making architecture and developing work that seemed relevant working on your content that the money would come later. And um, it, it's atypical, I think, um, to think like that in business. But um, I think that certainly allowed us to um, work almost in private in a way um, and really discover what we were and what we wanted to make and, and what we believed in. That's that's really it's really precious. I think it's, you know, we know of others who have started practice and they're, they're chasing from the beginning, chasing commissions and chasing clients and, and not giving themselves that, um, that time to really discover, um, you know, what kind of architecture they, they want to make or what kind of architect they are, or what they believe in. It's quite a, quite an important process. And I think once establishing that, it becomes a really natural thing to be able to articulate what it is that you've discovered and what you believe in to others. And, um, but I think also um, we we one of the other things that was on this list of tenants was um, that we wouldn't die for our art. We weren't going to kind of um, live on the poverty line just uh, for the sake of architecture. We weren't going to die in a ditch, as it were. Um, mm. So there was a sensibility about um, also making sure that whilst we were passionate about architecture and the craft that it wasn't going to um, Ruin our lives, or ruin our ability to also enjoy other things about about our lives, families and friends, and exercise, etc. And so the third tenant um, in our list was something about that um, architecture was uh, the practice was a place to dwell in architecture, so kind of a spatial place, but also an intellectual space where we could indulge in not just making architecture, but read about architecture and visit architecture and you know, dream about architecture. Um, I think that's, uh, um, I think that's pretty cool. And so what that leads you to do is be involved in all kinds of things. And you say yes to everything because everything became an opportunity for us to engage in architecture, which is what we saw the, the studio for, you know, it was just a literally a room full of people and, um, that created opportunities for Aaron and I, and, uh, and originally with Paul to, um, to, to indulge in, in architecture, um, like it's just a sort of pretty wonderful life, really. It felt like we were have been living the dream in a way. Um, of course, it's um, not all a bed of roses and it's um, difficult to run a practice, but um, it continues to be that way. But by saying yes to everything and, and thinking about, um, uh, you know, the practice as a way of engaging in architecture, I think just naturally meant that we were involved in whatever we could be involved with. And I think if I was more conscious Aaron, I'm not sure if he thought about it in this way, but I think in my kind of, in a conscious moment, I knew that it was also a clever tactic to have a kind of manifold strategy for marketing the practice, you know, to reach out to um, those in university, to academics, to students, to reach out to our clients um, with beautiful work, to talk to our peers about our work and share what it was that we found fascinating, to share what we were discovering we weren't really that picky about the magazines that we would pursue. There was no kind of clear tactic there. It was just simply if we could be involved, if we could engage um, across many levels. I think um, I think consciously, instinctively, I knew that that was, that was kind of clever. So public speaking became part of that and teaching, of course. Public speaking and teaching mm-hmm. is a sort of really great rehearsal for the, the pitch with your client, you know, and and in a way across all of those ways of engaging across all of that medium. I've found that we never really changed the way in which we talked about our work either. We we didn't shift our our rhetoric. We um, have always attempted to kind of keep the rhetoric at a at a level that was understandable and um and accessible i think that that was quite important
0: yeah so that makes sense so this stuff sort of was a a bit of a byproduct of just creating a bit of space for yourself to sort of enjoy and engage with architecture more and as you said it was just sort of a natural part of that process to begin engaging in these things and taking on these opportunities so it's sort of you mentioned it you had an idea at the time or a thought that yes this is probably going to be a good way to kind of get the practice out there Mm. or maybe that that's a sort of somewhat expected side benefit of it it's not the main reason we're doing it maybe but hey if you know it ends up kind of connecting with people and helping our practice to stand out and sort of showing them what we're about then that's a good thing but we're not going out there going okay i need to produce an uh you know a blog post a month because um my SEO guy has told me that that will get us further up Google, you know, (laughs) like it's not being driven by these sorts of sort of like more kind of like mundane things about trying to win business. And I guess like overall, I think uh, something that comes up with a lot of podcast guests sort of philosophically is that if you try too hard on the marketing front, you're actually going to probably turn off more people than if you just take a bit more of a laid back approach. And then that's going to send a bit of a better signal to people about You know, what kind of a practice you are and the quality of the work you do and all that. Would you would you guys agree with that philosophically? Like, you know, you don't really want to be trying too hard on the new business front, as you said earlier, with kind of mingling and networking and all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And one of the benefits that we had when when we first started practicing was that it was it was a pre digital media age. You know, it was a very tail end where most practices seemed not to have a website at that point in time. And Social media wasn't a thing, so if you if you wanted to get the word out there, you had to do it via old, more old school, analog means. So you you know someone someone else had to be a gatekeeper to the story that you wanted to tell, and in a lot of ways, that's a really good discipline. Um, if you if you send some photos of a building that you've done to a magazine or a newspaper or something, and they think it's crap, then they're not going to publish it, and in a way that kind of regulates um, the excesses of a a youthful practice that might want to get out and beat the drum for themselves. So that's sort of helpful. But then, of course, we've had to transfer a lot of that thinking into an environment where you can start a practice in theory online with a with a bunch of renderings and no actual commissions and sort of fabricate the idea that, that you're a successful and viable commercial entity without actually having a lot of work or a lot of ideas or experience or whatever and you know that that's really exciting I think for a lot of emerging practices that they can start to craft a narrative about themselves but for us as a more established practice we it's been more a case of trying to adapt trying to understand how our personalities might fit with that new media age so Stu and I definitely have an inclination to want to broadcast what, what we're doing and to be, to be a part of a conversation, a, a broader conversation. And that's why we've gotten involved in so many different things, as, as you mentioned, writing and giving lectures and, you know, having an having a Instagram presence, some of those sorts of things. But we've, I think we've learned over time that it doesn't always suit us. So, um, and it doesn't, well, I suppose you, you have to become more skilled at regulating, self-regulating what you put out there as well. So when Instagram first came along, it kind of it felt amazing. and we were posting really regularly, putting lots of information out there and that was kind of great. But we've both been through periods of time where we've had to take a break from that, um, not being digital natives and not really understanding, I, I guess the, the way in which you can get wrapped around the axle of how many likes you get or who you're connecting with or you know those, those sorts of things that, are, that all of us are familiar with. I think we you know it's it's been a it's been a fairly quick learning curve to just try and find your level you know I was I was never on Facebook I didn't engage with any of that stuff up until Instagram and I have to say I rather liked it um it helped me to focus on the here and now to be sort of more mindful about my you know emotion, emotional state or just to have more kind of self awareness I think generally to not Constantly be in the public sphere, and to be able to pull back, take my time, and wait for the opportunity to come around rather than forcing the issue. So th- th- there's a there's there's a whole bunch of hurdles there. I mean, none of it's particularly scary or difficult, and I don't have any amazing insight into any of it. But what I would say is that I I think we I, th- I think that we're starting to get to a point where we're a little more cognizant of what it is we're good at and what it is we're not good at um, and trying to sort of focus our energies into places where we, we actually do have skills or we actually
0: do have something to say. And what would, and what would those areas be that you have actually picked out and gone, you know, that's where our sort of skills lie. Um, is there anything that kind of comes to mind?
1: Well, I mean, I guess one that, one that comes to mind is that, you know, we're, we're interested in slower forms of, um, dissemination of ideas perhaps than than we once were. So that, that's maybe one of the reason why we've been writing more and posting less because it allows us to uh, enjoy the benefit of having a, a, a body of work that we can look back on and 20 years now of experience of practising together, having an ongoing com- conversation with one another and with our clients and with our staff and a whole bunch of different people that has I, th- I think amounted to you know, something approximating a level of insight or wisdom, I guess you could say. And writing, I think, you know, producing essays. So we're working on a book at the moment, um, a book of essays, which is really exciting. That process has been has been really great for us because it's been a moment where we could take stock and and we can produce something that we, we wouldn't have been able to produce fifteen years ago because we just did we just didn't have the experiences. We didn't have enough scrapes on our knees. Um, you know, we hadn't come off the bike often enough to figure out who we are and what it is that we're trying to do. I think um, so. Per- perhaps that, perhaps that's an, an example of uh, what I mean. You know, we're we're at a we in a mid-career stage, basically, is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, Stuart, anything to add?
2: Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's interesting. A sort of shift away from uh, images um, back back to words and back to dialogue. Um, I mean there's always been this ongoing dialogue as you can imagine Um, it's really a thing for any partners I think in any kind of business really that there's um, this ongoing dialogue but um, really critical I think in a creative practice like um, an architectural practice and Images were always really important to us. We, um, From the outset, we only ever wanted to post images of, of built work on our website. We consciously built the, the image of the practice around things that we, w- we had built. And that was a way of expressing what we were really into as well. It wasn't just um, a piece of machinery that was, uh, you know, an ideas factory. And um, we weren't satisfied with unbuilt work and proposals and dreaming only. It was... Um, You know, we were kind of excited about going to work and building things. So being able to photograph a finished work has always been really special for us. And, you know, the website's always been about built work. That's really important. And as Aaron said, we kind of dove into social media through Instagram. And I think I jumped into it in 2011. And I found it really exciting, actually, because it was initially a place where you posted your own photographs, not someone else's. And it was instant, what you shot in the moment you then posted. Um, and I found that it gave at least me or the, or the practice a, a, a different vehicle for expressing the process of making the work because we had a website with the glamour photography, you know, made by John Lincolns or um, Chris Frederick-Jones on the on the website, a suite of beautiful images that talked about the, the outcome. But, you know, they, those sort of photographs always concealed what the reality of a practice and and the making of a project really was about and and i found instagram was this wonderful way of exposing others or kind of sharing with others uh the process of making and the things that sat behind what it was that we were making like it found like it felt like finally there was a there was a way of um expressing our values through images that weren't glamour photography and so uh, i started posting images of buildings around my neighborhood that inspired the work in some way abstractly or directly the kind of things that we were making in our work um, found that to be really wonderful all of that changed I think when it got to a point where almost all of the practices that kind of got involved in Instagram were posting professional photographs of their work you know it just became a kind of commercial vehicle for advertising and it, um, it wasn't about making amazing connections and um, with other people it wasn't social anymore it was purely commercial and then i think really um was a became a sort of natural death for the way in which we were using social media in the way in which we thought about the, the importance of images and i think for, for both aaron and i i think um, instagram has really just become a commercial marketing tool for us now feels like something that um you know one needs to be involved in and needs to be engaged with but it, it, it's no longer social um and it's no longer a place where we can really talk about our values or, or share things, um, um, you know, share the things that are, you know, in our minds and the things that we discover. For, for me,
1: I'm, I'm probably more cognizant of the things that we're not good at and what to avoid and particularly with social media. Um, we we were talking just before we started recording about the recent podcast that you did with Sean Goldsall, which I found really interesting and You know, Sean's kind of famous for saying, you know, I'm not bothered by criticism and one of the things that I've realised about myself, and and I think it's probably true of Stu to an extent but maybe a lesser extent, is that I do care what people think actually and I I want to be liked by people and at times I, I probably want to be liked too much and I care too much about what people think and it doesn't necessarily stop me from from um, having resolution about what I do or to follow through on ideas when other people might be dissenting from it. but what I did what I did realize is that, that Instagram, which is sort of really the only social media that I've used extensively, was feeding a kind of negative side of my personality. So it was, it was making me overly concerned about what I you know might not be doing rather than what I was doing. Um, so that that sort of allowed us, and, and Stu, Stu and I spoke about this quite a lot at the time, actually, allowed us to realise that we should pull back from, from that at, at certain times, to not get swept away, to not start focusing on you know aspects of the practice that we can't control or comparing ourselves to other practices that we're just not like, actually, who might be doing amazing things that we really admire, but we're just completely different from us. The circumstances are different, their personalities are different. That I think was really the most important takeaway.
2: Well, well that sort of um, obscene focus mm. on images, I think was also taking our focus away from ideas. And, um, and it also consumed that, that space that we once ha- had given ourselves to, to really engage with the ideas in the work and the time that we would normally offer each other to kind of discuss the work and discuss buildings that we'd visited or buildings that inspired us, You know, that was starting to kind of disappear. I think we were kind of becoming conscious of that because we were just con- constantly consumed by this obsession with the image and and the image uh, production in in social media. I, I mean, images are still really important, and in a way, it's a really nice way to resolve the end of your project. That um, it finishes, and there's that really special day that you have with the building where you're with the photographer and and photographing it. It's a, a really lovely way to finish a project, and that that's something that's still important to us. I said I gave a lecture a couple of years ago to a small practice group in um, in Brisbane. I think I used the expression that uh, in relation to marketing and photography, I I think I said something like, "One should uh, find a photographer to grow old with." And um, I'd always really admired Julius Shulman and um, Neutra had done with the way in which you know Neutra's work had been portrayed. And there's that enormous volume that was published. Um, You know, it's inches, inches thick. And it's interesting when you flick through the pages, it's almost like it's one building from 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 one you know from cover to cover. And there's just this amazing consistency and conviction in, in the architect's work, but there's also an equal level of conviction in the way in which the work is seen and portrayed by the photographer. And I always thought that was really fascinating. And um, so I'd always really like the idea that we would find uh, a photographer that we could grow old with as well and just enjoy our careers together and learn from each other. And and that was something that I did with um, with John Lincoln's when he was still shooting um, architecture. He's now retired from architectural work, but um, he was he's been one of my greatest mentors um, in, in architecture. And um, you know, with Aaron and I, I've both really enjoyed that that kind of process of spending time with our photographers, um, learning about our work through that process. So you know, that that's still really important to us. But we're now back with the words, and we're back with dialogue as really settling and really important kind of time together instead of obsessing over the images. I don't think we, we, we tend not to sit with old images of our work and talk about the work in that way. I think we're more likely to sit around a book and um, discussing ideas and ideas that we've been, it's like any, any old friend that you have, you've been, it's like you've been having the same conversation for the whole time that you've been together. And so, you know, nearly twenty years on, we're still talking about those same things, plus extra things that we've collected over the years. And and just in the last uh, twelve months or so that we've been writing more and um, you know p- producing the content for this book, um, Aaron's been also engaging in a PhD, which has been a really wonderful kind of period and a r- really great way to um, reignite that dialogue again. I think it's yeah, it's been fantastic.
0: That's awesome. It's, it's so interesting. I, I speak to a lot of architects that are probably in that that initial five years you spoke about earlier, where they're where they're kind of figuring out what they're about and sort of um, you know thinking about producing relevant buildings and working on all of that stuff that you mentioned earlier. Um, and then they but they get to this point where they start thinking, I guess, a bit more about the business and the marketing. And I think they come to me with a certain set of assumptions about the things that they might need to do to get the practice out there and attract new business and new clients. And oftentimes what I'm sort of talking to them about is, you know, that writing that you were doing, maybe do more of that. You know, that teaching that you're doing, maybe do more of that. Then we have this really weird discussion because it's pretty counterintuitive that that stuff would actually help a practice commercially. I know I've kind of asked the question in a few different ways, but I guess I'm interested in terms of when, when clients come in the door, you're getting these new commissions and, um, you're, you're, you're trying to get a sense of whether that client is like-minded, whether they're a good fit for the practice. Are you sometimes looking for a sense that they've, in, they've connected with that stuff and engaged with it? Um, is that something that you expect to anticipate with people that approach the studio or are, are you more of the assumption of, uh, I'm guessing they probably haven't read that stuff but they just like our work? Is it maybe a little bit less hardcore than that? But what, what, what tends to happen?
1: I definitely assume that they haven't, to be honest. And I'm really surprised when occasionally someone does mention that that they have read an essay on the website or they've seen a lecture, It, it, it and it does happen from time to time. I mean, marketing really is quite inscrutable to, to me, and our approach has just been to throw everything that we can at the wall and see what sticks, mm. and that accords with our personalities. As I was saying before, you know, we, we're active, we want to be involved, and so we we want to be in practice because we wanted to, to create a place for ourselves to dwell in architecture, to indulge, yeah. to just be architects. So by extension, anything that allows us to 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 be architects, to, to speak about architecture, to, to make drawings, to, to be on site, to talk to other people about our work or talk to other people about their work, any of that, it's all great. So we do it and it sustains us and it makes our nine-to-five really enjoyable actually and we're just incredibly yeah. fortunate and privileged that by doing that we've just stumbled across a method that is somehow yeah. paying dividends for us. Um, we're certainly not marketing geniuses um, no, and in that- fact I, I think I think anyone with any level of expertise who had any oversight into what we're doing would probably have a heart attack but um, you know we, we just do what comes naturally to us and as, as, yeah. as I was saying earlier as we've gotten more experience with, you know, we've jettisoned some things that we realise don't make us happy generally. That's normally why they get jettisoned, but they also sometimes get jettisoned because we realise that they're a vanity project or they're, they, you know, we can't see any tangible benefit. Uh, so, so, you know, like it, it is a little bit, it's a little bit kind of random, um, but there's a, there is a kind of method to it. And that method is about sustaining practice, about sustaining so- your excitement and interest in practice.
0: Yeah, so actually, I think that that really clarifies it quite a bit because sometimes um, when I'm having discussions with guests about this, I get the sense that this kind of content that we create, whether it's writing or speaking or whatever, it's kind of an output of the design process at the end and it's about kind of conveying that to the world and all of that sort of stuff. But for a lot of studios, in fact, a lot that I have on the podcast, I actually come to understand that it's more of a creative input it goes into the process to make the buildings better that then turns into very simplistic outputs like photos and magazines and awards mm. and all that sort of stuff on the end. But it's more of almost like your in-house research and development process. It's going, what are the activities that we do that they're not marketing, but they they make our work better. They appear mm. like marketing because they're they're public, inherently like they're content for other people to read because we share mm. kind of the we share our research, we share our findings, our ideas, but we're doing them because we're doing them because it makes the work better you know so i think is that sort of more in line with how you guys kind of see that side of the work that i'm guessing it's probably the case but do you sort of see it as like being the thing that allows you to maybe really you know develop your work to the next level which then ultimately lets the marketing kind of take care of itself
2: yeah i think it's a form of critical practice and critical thinking it's inherently just the way in which we undertake the work and and it, you know it's what you would describe as our process i shouldn't say never but it's rarely post-rationalized um you know i think the post-rationalizing happens in the moment as part of the process you know you make a mark you draw a room or you make a form and you reflect on it instantaneously and and then you might discover the reason or the the kind of relevance so there, there is sort of a post-rationalizing but it's not it's not something that um happens at the end of the work. We don't stand back and think, all right, so what What have we made here and what's this all about? Do you think so, Stu? Uh, I mean, there are definitely, there's been times when we'll sit together and think, okay, well, if we, we've made this building now, if we now had to kind of stand in front of a class at university or, you know, walk some of our peers through through this project, what would we say about it? I, th- I think there's definitely, we've asked ourselves that question but I wonder if that, Aaron, is is more a kind of inquiry about is there anything new that we've made here? Is there anything new that we have to say about this building that we haven't already discovered or, or, or talked about in another work? I think we spend
1: an enormous amount of time reflecting on what we do, um, but not in a formal way, perhaps is is what you're trying to say. So we, we don't have, um, you know, we don't put meetings in the calendar where we sit down and ask ourselves what have we done did did we do good how can we do better you know we we don't set KPIs or do it in that way but I suppose what we have had is just a what you might call a kind of a conversation that's been going on now for 20 years and every time a new work gets completed it kind of enters into that conversation and yeah. We find ourselves referring back when we're making another building saying, oh, remember that way that we made the door frame there, you know, would that work? Oh, yeah, but we would tweak it in this way, um, you know, through to standing on site with Chris when he's taking the photos and directing, you know, having a negotiation with Chris about what we do and don't want to see or what what it was that we're trying to do or when we sat with students trying to help them with their projects and saying, well, you know, I would do it this way. And in all those informal ways, I think it, it does eventually amount to a form of sort of active, ongoing post-rationalisation, yeah. not in the sense of providing a justification for what you've done. I, I don't think, I think sometimes post-rationalisation can have that those kind of negative connotations. But when I think about post-rationalisation, I, I think of it more as a, a kind of form of reflection and certainly we, we did that all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, you absolutely. know, that, that's why, that, that's why we enjoy practicing together with one another. You know, I said earlier that I, you know, I sometimes lack you know, confidence in, in what I do, or I kind of look to others for reassurance. And that's one of, one of a number of different reasons why I, for me, practicing is synonymous with practicing with others um, I, I can't imagine being a sole practitioner. I, I think mm. I would find that excruciating. Yeah. Um, and, and I've always, and, and I know that Stu feels the same way. He's always wanted to practice with someone else. Um, and I, I think there, there are a number of different reasons for it, but probably foremost in my mind is, is that, um, participation in an ongoing conversation that allows you to work through what it is that you're doing. And, um, form some sort of consensus or um, gain an insight or to clarify what it is your objectives might be
2: we we were asked once you know what what it was that we thought was successful about or what made our partnership successful and i suggested that it was the presence of a caring critic and it's um might be the thing that explains why there there can be so many great designers in, in a country like australia or in a city like brisbane and yet so few good buildings get made. It, it can't be a lack of talent. But um, certainly within our partnership, what we have is what I described as a caring critic in each other, um, someone who actively participates in um, ref- that reflection that Aaron was talking about and, and a critical review of, of the work as the work is being made, but also engages in um, a dialogue about ideas, which is, you know, it's decades long now. And, and that's I think really important H- having someone who works alongside you who allows you to make a building but might remind you to lift your ambition or carefully critique the work without sabotaging your enthusiasm for the work or your creativity or your interest in pursuing something new finding something new and I, th- and I think that's um, I think that's what's what's rare in a creative practice Um but, you know, there are, there are the same number of really great students that graduate every year from each of the universities. Uh, you know, it can't, it can't be a lack of talent that dictates how many good buildings get made in this country. I think the caring critic helps you decipher what's a good idea and what's maybe a, a bad idea, you know, what's worth keeping, what's worth discarding as, as you're making a building.
1: There's such a lot of tenacity that's required to deliver a building. It's such a long process mm. and it requires so many different skill sets to, to procure a building that it's very, it's very, very rare, I think, to find all of those in one individual. And certainly I don't have them all. And I think Stu would agree that he doesn't have them all either. So when when you have the benefit of working with other people and you're able to recognise what your strengths and weaknesses might be and, and have an open and honest conversation with someone else, which allows them to start to complement the skills that you might have, I, I think that makes you an an incredibly um, much more agile and capable architect, really. Um, Yeah. Again, uh, practising on your own would just be – it's inconceivable to me how I would ever be able to – deliver a work that's anywhere near the kind of quality of the work that we've been able to do together. That that definitely rings true because I do speak to a lot of
0: architects that maybe are struggling and they think that they're struggling with their marketing, but I also just think that they're struggling to, that they don't really have any um, sense, they have no feedback on the quality of their work from anybody mm. or anywhere. You know, they've tried sending it mm. to publications and they all don't want it. It doesn't do well on social media. They're not, they're not entering a war. So, there's all those things going on but they're not they're not they think that they have a marketing issue but they I actually just get the sense that they're kind of losing touch with maybe certain aspects of like what could be better about their work or what they could be doing mm. differently they're not mm. really being challenged and I do wonder about all the studios out there that you know, you guys are so engaged with your peers in the industry. And I think that probably keeps you, you know, uh, puts a little bit more, gives you a little bit more feedback, a little bit more information to work from. You, you get a better sense of how your work is sitting in, on the ladder. Whereas hmm. does that sort of maybe maybe more studios kind of need better ways to kind of get feedback on what they're doing? Because if they're isolated, they're just on their own. I don't know how you could possibly continue to improve. Well,
1: Dave, I think I think there's an abundance of criticism out there. Um, and there's an abundance of flattery out there. But what's really pr- precious, in in fact, is cr- constructive criticism, you know, it, that that's not blowing smoke up your ass, which is actually really unhelpful. And, and often it's yeah. just you blowing smoke and it's sort of getting channeled back into your own ass. Um, so <laughs> always got to be careful of that one. Um, and you, I mean, you, you see it play out in at the university when you, you go to a critique and this is I, I think this is something that I learnt um, many years ago as a guest critic in a, in a um, de- design critique was that a student could put their work on the wall and you could look at it and find lots of things wrong with it. It's not it's not hard to poke holes in a student's work. Um, and the things that you might say to them might all be correct, that they might all be very insightful observations about how bad the building is. But if they're not ready to hear that criticism or if that criticism isn't delivered in the right way well you might as well just say nothing because none of it is actually translating and the circumstances that you need to be able to convey important information that might be perceived as negative are actually quite particular you need to have trust or you need to have incredible resilience as the person who's receiving that feedback and even if you are resilient emotionally robust Often that's only in certain circumstances. You know, we all sometimes just don't want to hear the right thing because we're having a bad day or under stress or whatever. So I, I began to understand that there was a relationship between criticism and, and trust, and and I think that that's something that, that can be fostered within a within a partnership and, as Stu said, within a, uh, a relationship that involves caring criticism, you know. And then... What that means is that uh, Stuart can tell me something about my building that I really don't want to hear, but I know that he's also invested in the outcome of that building and I I, I know that he doesn't think I'm an idiot. Even if he thinks I've made a shit building, he doesn't think that I'm a shit person. And th- that's really important because it'll, it allows you to receive the kind of feedback that you actually need to hear. And conversely, when you, know, when you have a win, something goes right, when you get a certificate, whatever a couple of gold stars having someone there with you to, to share it with makes it richer but it also means that you don't get carried away as well so so all of those things are, are actually incredibly important and it's it's not it's not that there's too little criticism it's actually that there's too little constructive criticism in my opinion
2: yeah and when it comes from each other it's the sort of criticism that it, it's it's not all padding on the back you know it's um often criticism as you said Aaron that you, you don't really want to hear but you know the other person's probably right damn them and you should probably act on that um, critique or that suggestion you know and, and invariably if one does the building is better for it um, I think that's I think that's always been the case coming back to images for a moment the the problem hmm. with photography is that we've found is that it doesn't capture the, the smile on your client's face as I, you know, as they walk through their new building and the sheer delight that they are experiencing being in their building, the photograph isn't there for that. The photographer's not there to capture that smile on the client's face. And that's so important as a form of criticism of your work, you know, and, and, and a way of rev- um, reflecting on whether or not you have actually delivered on the commission that you were given. Um, that's really important to, you know, like it's really easy for architects to forget that they're making buildings for clients and that we aren't just marketing to a future client or talking to our peer group or or talking to ourselves, where we have accepted a commission from a client. And uh, that's worth a lot. A a happy client is worth so much. So a photograph doesn't document that. And a photograph often doesn't document some of the really critical things that you have, have made in a building, because they might seem inconsequential. You know, the decision... To either step down 150 mils from the living room to the to the deck, or step up, you know, 150 mils. Those things that you agonise over, and the things that Aaron and I and the and the team would waste hours indulging in. Those decisions, in a way, actually make the buildings um, something, you know, something remarkable. And again, they may not even those moments in the building may not be documented. They may not be recorded. So. Again, having a, having a kind of room of critics, and, and in particular, in our partnership, very caring critics for each other, there's a way in which we can reflect on the outcomes of our work and, and commend each other or, or criticize each other, for those things that don't ever get captured by the photograph. That, that's pretty important. Photographs are generally concerned about the things that you know a magazine might be interested in, you know an overall composition, uh, a room, a material, you know, a finish. That that might be the idea in a building but often it's not so yeah Mm. again the sort of the critic almost becomes more important um the presence of a caring critic is more important than a great photograph at the end Uh, as as a way of being comforted that we've we've done a good thing or we've we've satisfied our client yeah yeah just just changing um kind of
0: topic for a second i'm sort of interested in I guess actually photographs a little bit. Um, This is, it's kind of a recurring theme on the podcast that we're kind of becoming quite anti-photography, anti-Instagram. I think (laughs) that seems to be a pattern that's emerging with like a lot of my guests. So it's another one of those episodes, but um, I'm interested in terms of how the practice has gained more visibility in the public and and, and sort of brand awareness, I guess would be like the, the, the kind of marketing jargon there. I often get the sense that with a lot of studios that I speak to, a lot of the time it's usually attributable to a couple of really key projects that have just been kind of in the right place at the right time and they've just achieved this sort of critical mass of interest and attention. And you can look at similar to musicians and artists, there'll usually be some, a couple of standout things that have just been almost these turning points or these huge um, injections of interest into a practice. So I just wonder if that's, if you guys have found that any of the, there's been any patterns like that in your own portfolio where maybe a particular project or two has just really sort of really stood out and and just suddenly it's kind of brought a lot of attention to the studio and, and maybe part B is does that attention kind of last or does it ultimately kind of return to normal? So I'm just interested in kind of reflecting over your time the role that maybe key projects have played versus this just overall aggregate adding it all up Lots of little things approach.
1: I probably should say that because um, I don't want to sound like we're a pair of old slash middle-aged men um, yelling at clouds. I I, I really <laughs> like lots of things about Instagram. Um, honest, and uh, I I mean I think images are really important. I mean, Stu said as much. So I I think the point that we're trying to make is that 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 they are things that can distract you and they're things that you need to be wary of but they're also incredibly powerful um in a marketing sense but but also in the way that you reflect on the work that you've done you know ultimately you don't get to live in the buildings that you yeah. make very often um so that you know the photographic record of a building it often is is all you have um you know, that, that comes to define the legacy of the project for many people because very few people will be able to visit the building, particularly if it's a house. So um, anyway, just getting that out of the way, Dave. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, as, as regards the rest of your, your question, uh, there's such a – I feel like there's such a lag time between conceiving the idea, then delivering the project, It takes bloody forever – and then yeah. getting it out into the public sphere, waiting for it to appear in print, and then getting a phone call about it. That, that's years and years. So it, it makes it really difficult to track where that inquiry has come from, and we do ask. and uh, so, but, but often it's really hard to, to get the trail of breadcrumbs to, to sort of lead you back to whatever the origins of that, that interest were. And, and I think it's why, again, we've just thrown everything we can at the wall in the hope that enough things will stick, that there will be a phone call in in the future. Um, There have been a couple of exceptions to to that, I think. I I really feel like the practice was starting to build up a a body of work within the suburbs of, of Brisbane over a long period of time. But then when we did a project called the Forum Cottage, that seemed to distill a lot of the ideas that had been in play for quite some time. And that project seemed to seem to generate a number of inquiries but it also came around the same time as we did an, um, a project called the West End Tower and then West End Cottage and there was a bit of a roll on with some of those, in particular with West End Cottage because our client was writing a blog during the procurement of the building and had a quite a strong Instagram presence, not in so much as she had a huge amount of followers but she had a small but very dedicated group of followers so that also seemed to result in us getting echoes back you know so for having for a practice that had been making buildings um and screaming into the void for 10 years about them we all of a sudden started to get this feedback from people that we hadn't explicitly sought out you know we would get a phone call from someone asking what's the color white that you used at um, west end tower or you know like it and that in a way felt as if something had shifted and i don't know whether it was a result of a critical mass or whether it was one of those projects just sort of broke through finally it was a pressure building up and one of those projects broke through but by the way it happened and it took about 10 years i think um so might have a slightly different view on that but that was my impression
2: oh uh, yeah i think i'd um share a very similar story that there's always been certain buildings that have greater success in mainstream media, in the industry awards or in magazines. Um, you can almost predict um, which projects might and which ones won't. That's definitely been really helpful. I think it's um, just having a presence in the media is has absolutely been really helpful to the practice being sustained. It also makes us feel good about ourselves um, and our team feel good. But I think it's been important that we have made work from a, you know, body of ideas and each project in a way con- uh, contributes to this body of ongoing body of work. I think um, we don't necessarily see the work as being discrete, independent pieces of work, you know, that it's not like we, we win a commission and then we start from, from a uh, state, you know, it's step one again um, and rethink our whole practice or tr- try and um, work out the meaning of the universe for each project. It's, each project is almost like the precursor for the next. And we take certain things with us and we discard other things. And um, a, a, in a way, I'd, again, it's, it's like the, the union between Schulman and Neutra. There's this uh, vast sort of body of work and, and it feels more meaningful in a way as a form of critical practice that each each piece contributes to the past and, and, and the next project that we make. So
1: People seem attracted, I think, to a sensibility that flavours that lineage of the work. You know, Stu spoke about a continuity between projects and for me I've always thought that that derived from a sensibility or an attitude that the practice has towards the places that we work and the people that we work for and it manifests in a whole bunch of different ways in the buildings but my sense has always been that it's not necessarily been one particular project that's um, cut through but it's been that when people look at the imagery of the buildings somehow they see in it something that resonates with them and I think what that something is is a set of values um, they're hard to they're hard to define and I think if you asked a lot of our clients you know what is it that you like about the work they probably wouldn't be able to define them too but w- we have found that there's correlation between people who come to us because of the work and how profitable that that relationship is then becomes and i don't mean in monetary terms i mean in, in terms yeah. of the success of the project and how easy it is to work with someone and how receptive they are to the kind of things that mm. we might be um, speaking about and the kind of things that they bring to the conversation that then make our work better that always seems to work best when when they've come because they they know and understand and like the work and for me that that always seems to be um built upon the kind of fundamental core values that have built the work in the first place, and that just seems to attract like-minded people.
2: And I think for that reason it was natural for us to not include project descriptions on our website with the images. We always felt like the work could, photographs of the work and the work could speak for itself and it would make a connection Mm -hmm. with people and the way in which we might, or the things that we would choose to write about are the things that we, our observations or the things that we might describe as our expression of our of these values that Aaron's talking about. So they sit in parallel with the photographs um, of the projects on the website. And in a way they're they're the kind of primer to the work that if one wants to really understand the practice and what and our belief systems, one can read those essays. And and they are the kind of primer for the for then understanding the work. And we thought we joked um, recently that if we were forced, someone said, oh you, you guys should really write kind of descriptions about each of your work that would be really informative and we we joked that it would you know each description would read exactly the same um because there's only you know Mm -hmm. so many ideas that a practice can have i think and um i think you get to a point where every building the description of every building would sound entirely the same so it just seemed like a um, redundant exercise really and it's nothing more boring than the descriptions that architects write about their own buildings it's sort of egocentric but to be able to write about what you believe in and and the observations you've, that you've made is a really nice way for for one to really understand um, what kind of building they might get or what what the what the process might be like. I think. And I expressed recently. I know there's there's always been this whole thing about in, in creative fields about finding one's manifesto. You know, the question of oh, what's what's your manifesto in your work? Like it's this big thing. And and I don't know how I came to this moment. I, I might have heard it spoken, but. But I think as it it turns out that one's manifesto is oneself. It's just, it's who you are. So if you can get to a point in your practice, and I think we're getting there together, Aaron and I, where you can just be yourself and bring yourself to the work, then that is your manifesto. It turns out that it's you all this time. You know, you can go looking all over the world for your manifesto, but it's always been with you. It's, you just have to be yourself and um you know if uh, as a sort of mid-career practitioner i think it's the sort of wisest thing that we could offer to a young um uh you know practitioner who's just started a practice that you know at some point you you have to um attempt to you know drop the pretense you know you can't be an architect that you aren't you can't be something that you aren't you can only be yourself so um you know, I think maybe it's luck that we, we got there pretty soon, I think, in our practice, that we realised that if we just focused on making buildings and, and focused on the things that we admired and the things that inspired us and our, and our own values and our own stories, I think, I think in the work and the things that we, we write about and talk about, it's pretty clear that we, we um, enjoy kind of reflecting on our own histories, our own personal histories, whether they're spatial histories or emotional histories, family histories histories of place but it's all about bringing oneself to the work i Mm. think that's really really critical
1: and i think it's important to remember too that 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 manifesto or that position that you take is if if it is reflective of you is as changeable as you are as a person so you may you may take a position at one point in your career but that won't be the position that you have the day that you reach whatever we've reached the mid the middle of the road you know, and and I and I think that's that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, and I think some practices and some architects probably won't. You know, they they won't like hearing that sort of be yourself advice. Um, and they'll probably message me all Fuck pissed em. off about it later on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, you know, they don't like hearing it because like that's kind of whatever. Um, you know, that well, what about the client? All that sort of thing. But I think the the point that you made earlier is that it's not like you're getting commissions and clients. Just complete random set of people, and then you just be yourself, and then they just have to deal with it. It's it's a it's a feedback loop. You're being yourself, producing work that aligns with that manifesto. That's attracting people that are similar to you, who want the same sorts of things, who have in their own way a sort of aligned manifesto, and they're coming to you, and they want kind of they expect that yeah. from you in their project. And there's sort of this there's this beautiful sort of um, aligning of clients and you guys and you're all kind of on the same page hopefully that's the that's the idea but but if you don't be yourself in the first place and you put your sort of either everything for everybody or you're just completely not putting anything out there at all then you are going to get that random mix and some people won't be a good fit with that so i i I kind of get that that's kind of the vibe or maybe the defense of that idea of being yourself and when
2: it works really beautifully i think with clients and you make that really wonderful connection and this is as equally wanky as my theory about manifestos but um i think what what you you come to the realization that you are, you and your client uh, or the the whole commission is about spending a moment in time together and the outcome is that you just happen to make a building and that it's all you know sometimes when it's such a, a wonderful connection that you make with your clients it seems like it's not really about the building you know it's just you get to share something together you share a moment in in this time on this planet together, and, and that sounds totally wanky, and uh, you know I don't know what what one could make from that, but it it's it feels like it's not about the transaction, you know, it's the moment when I feel least yeah. like I'm a service provider, and we've written a fee proposal and someone's accepted it, and I've got demands placed on me, and I think that's that that's kind of where I would love to be able to be for the the rest of our practice, that that's how practice life feels, that we get to spend time with. People that we make a connection with, and we have a great moment together, and out the other end uh, happens to, to appear a building, which everyone enjoys. You know, it's um, that that feels really good to me. You know, when when the the commission is like that.
0: Yeah, I think we should probably wrap up pretty soon. But I, I'm just briefly interested in. I guess, do you guys have any? Um, I guess, like future future goals for the practice? I mean, you spoke a little bit earlier about how excited you were to be kind of spreading your wings into into more public work and more commercial. I mean, but is there something else that, that you guys are thinking about and going, you know, that's kind of driving us and we're sort of interested in that at the moment. Um, Yeah. Just, or, or any, any more unexpected things. Do you guys want to, Become a 200-person studio, or just scale down to just the two of you guys in a spare bedroom somewhere. Like, what's what does the future of Vokes and Peters look like? You reckon?
2: Yeah, I think we're really enjoying again saying yes to all of these quite exciting opportunities that are coming our way. Opportunities to collaborate with larger practices on larger buildings that we couldn't undertake on our own. But in the process of doing that, I mean, I think it happens for all practices that do this. We're also learning how to accommodate more within our own practice and we've just restructured in a way or created a new um, structure within the practice. So we have made two two practice associates, um, Jared and Emma, this year. And, you know, like any practice, it's a it's a sort of a way for us to, or it recognizes our interest in um giving others um a chance to contribute to the, the kind of critical decision making of the practice. We sort of recognize that as founders of a small practice that we can only um steward the the practice so far and we're limited by our our own uh, ourselves um and our own fears and ambitions so probably in the spirit of um how it all began and an interest in collaboration and and working together we're, we're now inviting others to have a more formal um proactive role in you know Helping us take it further, and it probably doesn't mean a practice of two hundred by any means, but it 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 means a practice that is um, in embracing you know that change. I had a a senior practitioner in Brisbane advise me sometime this year that I I said, "Oh wow, you're doing so well!" And you know, what's the secret? And and this practitioner said, "You you have to constantly embrace change." And um, I think they were they were really wise words, and I, I think. That's kind of um, what's been happening this year for us. And I, and I think it's reflective of the, the nature and the scale of the work that's, um, that's being offered to our, to our practice, which is really exciting. And I, again, I think we haven't been aggressive in the way that we've pursued those sort of commissions. I think it's natural that if you work from a body of ideas and those ideas are scalable and they're also about cities, they're not just about backyards or about en-suites then I think you create that opportunity to um, participate in different kinds of buildings at different scales across the city. So um, that's, that's what I'm excited about. I think, I think Aaron feels the same way, but Aaron, you can, um, you can, you can close this.
1: Get the chance to contradict everything (laughs) you've just said. Fantastic. Um, Yeah. Look, I, I think I do agree with everything that, that Stu's just said. And I think the only thing I would add to it is that in the last few years we've become and I know I know you're not running a wellness podcast Dave um and I know you're not a late career yeah. Oprah Winfrey but I, I think I think um sustaining practice has, has become a real focus for us in the last few years and that that relates to to your well-being and um just you, you particularly you know your, your mental health and your resilience and um and and really just sustaining your passion for for architecture and you realize that Without um that passion for architecture, everything else falls away. you know it's the thing that fueled our success as we we're speaking about at the beginning of the interview that that drew us into all these different um, channels where we could you know throw our creativity and and just see make things happen um, and twenty years later, you realize that if you don't care for that if you don't nurture that passion then it does ebb, um, because it's a really hard gig architecture and as, yeah. as fantastically fortunate and privileged as Stu and I have been um, over that course of time, it, there, there's still a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of um, sandwiches that you have to eat that, that um, aren't particularly appetizing. And, you know, you can get to a point where you just, you don't want it anymore, or you're doing it on autopilot and that's really dangerous. So, you know, we, we've sought lots of opportunities in the last few years to renew um, our excitement and our, and our passion and change the way that we do things, change the way that, that we work with each other and with others, and that's an ongoing challenge I, I realise now, um, but it's also critically important because without the passion, the re, you know, nothing works.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. Aaron Stewart, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Dave. Great to chat. You're welcome. That was my conversation with Stuart and Aaron from Vokes and Peters. If you'd like to learn more about Vokes and Peters, you can visit VokesandPeters.com. You can also follow Stuart on Instagram at Stuart underscore and, and Aaron at Aaron underscore vokesandpeters. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.